0: In 2008 and in her early 70s, Ruth Ann Minner left political office for the last time and returned to the place that had nurtured her heart and soul, Milford. After a political career that spanned more than three decades, she returned to what was most important to her. When we spoke to Ruth Ann, she was humble, kind, and generous. Ever the grandmother, she offered chocolate and water. You'd never know that she had one of the most extraordinary political careers in Delaware history from the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. This is Whip Count.
1: Well, it was wonderful. I lived on a farm south of Milford, and of course now I live on a farm north of Milford, so I haven't gotten very far. (laughs) But anyway, um, we lived right off Cedar Creek, and of course we had fishing and crabbing and all the things that go with the woods and the marsh and hunting and that sort of thing, so. Had a good life. There's one story I tell about my life on the farm when I was a kid, and it was before I was old enough to go to school, okay? In fact, it was during the war then. And my father used to take the farm truck and go down to Fort Salisbury. It was uh, used as the prisoner of war camp. But anyway, Daddy used to go down to Slaughter Neck, because we lived at Slaughter Neck, and he used to go over to Cedar Neck to the fort and, and get the prisoners, and they would work on the farm. And I thought they were terrific. I didn't even have to go out in the field and pull weeds anymore. And there was this one in particular that i became become accustomed to and, and was close to because my job in the milk shed was always washing all the milk buckets. And all I had to do was spray with a hose, you know. But still, for a little kid who wasn't even big enough to go to school, I thought that was a terrible job because, you know, I, I never quite got them clean enough to suit anybody. And I always thought, what's the difference? they just going to have milk in it again. Right. So what's the difference, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, the one that I became really close to, he was from Germany. And he always talked about his little girls and his family. And he would say, my little girls would love your life. Because, you know, I rode on the tractors, I rode on the trucks, I went wherever the men went most of the time because I was the youngest one and I was home by myself. My mother had taken a job and so, as I say, we became close and he was very helpful. He even gave my cats milk. I didn't even have to go feed the cats. So anyway, he he didn't come. For like two or three days, he didn't come. And finally I went to the crew leader and I said to him, Where's Hans? He didn't come two or three days. And he looked for my dad, and he couldn't find him, and he said, I wish your dad was here. Could I wait and tell you about Hans when your dad's here? And I said, well, he's over at the other farm. He won't won't come until time to pick you up and take you home, and he'll be in a hurry because he'll come right back and go right back out on his tractor again. So he says, well, okay, you sit down, and I will explain it to you. So Hans' family in Germany had all been killed, every one of them. He had not a niece, a nephew, a brother, sister, anything left. The whole family was just, well, they all lived in three houses, like right next to each other. And so when the bomb got him, it got all the whole families. And his little girls, as he always called them, my mother used to package up my clothes when I outgrew them, and I was the youngest of four girls. So they'd already had three girls ahead of me, and then I wore them, and then mother would box them up and send them over to his little girls because they were even littler than me, some of them. So anyway, I couldn't understand why, and then I thought about it. As I grew older, I kept thinking about it, and I think, you know, that man hated the war as much as we did, and his family were destroyed by that war. I had a brother that was in the, uh, the war, and he was in Germany. And that's where all this bombing and everything was going on. And I used to wake up at night screaming. I mean, I had nightmares after that. But there are so many people in this state that never knew there were prisoners of war right down the road from them. And the people in Milford, most of them, were shocked. After I married and I got married at 16, I had to drop out of school and I was kind of frustrated because I was a good student. I got my first B in the ninth grade. Other than that, I had all A's. Didn't even have an A minus. I had A's. Couldn't get an A plus, but I didn't have an A minus either. Anyway, and we had, I had a good life and I was 16, as I say, when I got married, so I moved away. from my parents, where they were living. And moved uh, about three miles from there, up at Arco's Corner. Frank and I were married 16 years. So I was 32, he was 34, when he died like that of a heart attack. Wow, must
0: have been really shocking.
1: Yeah, it sure was. He left home to go pick up some checks. He had an asphalt bathing business. And he, to go pick up some checks for some jobs that he had done stopped at this fire hall in uh, Ellendale and asked them if they would help him. He, was, he felt really awful. And they put him in the ambulance and took him to the hospital. So, Anyway, my life started over again. And I knew that I couldn't make it because I'd never worked 16 years. I'd just been a housewife and a mother. I went back to school and I worked in the school library down at at what was then Del Tech, down in Sussex County. Six of us who worked in the library got mono, And if you don't know what mono is, hope you never have to find out, because I was sick. I mean, I couldn't even get up. So my mother came and stayed with me for a few days until I got so I could get up, at least. And I never went back to school. I figured, boy, what if my kids had have gotten that, but they didn't. Little rascals were all healthy, so I was lucky. And then I went to work with the Delaware and Crop Reporting Service. And I walked through cornfields and counted years of corn. And I walked through soybean fields and counted how many pods were on the vines. I, I ended up working for them until I was the supervisor for everything west of the Chesapeake Bay. Everything east of the Chesapeake Bay, I'm sorry. And the girl who was on the west side got sick, and they started me working both sides. So I worked the east side first, but then I went to west side too. So, And I had 12 people that were out in the fields walking, and I just had to check on their work. Wow. But anyway, from there, I went to Dover to work as an attaché. We and
0: drew you to public service and to work in
1: Dover? The person who was the legislator, because I had helped him in getting elected, and he had helped me to get to federal job. So I knew him because of that. And uh, he came one day and asked me, he said, aren't you tired of walking through cornfields and soybean fields? I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you come to work with me in Dover? So I went and I was, uh, I started out just as a page, okay? Now, my first husband had worked in Dover, so I was familiar with what it was. And then I went to the mail room, which they don't even have anymore. Here was Ruth Ann, 10th grade education. I got one year of college, and that was it. I got sick the next year in the fall season. The reading clerk got sick. And so Lou Harrington, who was the legislator that I went to work with, he said to me, the reading clerk's sick. Would you read today? (laughs) Me? Yeah. I said, I can't sit up there and read in front of all these people. Me with a 10th grade education? He said, no, you got a couple of years of college. You're okay. He said, it doesn't pay anymore. It's the same salary. So if it doesn't work it out, we'll just use somebody else. I said, okay, promise me that. So then I went to, you may know this name too, Glenn Mears, who was the, the uh, majority leader at the time, and I said to him, if I wave at you, would you please get me off of that podium because you'll know I'm too upset to read. Well, I read for two years, okay, the two-year ter- the two term. You, then we had 30 days one year and 90 days the next. Wow. The 30-day was kind of bad for the poor employees. You didn't make much money for 30 days. But anyway, they, they gave me extra work in the, working on the calendars and doing all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I got more time than a lot of them did, but it was still tough. And I had to watch, because you've got to remember now, I had three kids. And those kids were home by themselves at night when I had to work at night. Sherman Tribbett and I were good friends. Well, my first husband and Sherman Tribbett were friends even before he passed away and Sherman had asked me to come up to his office and work. And I was working in what they called then, the library, which now you would call the file room. And I was a file clerk, okay? He had a girl answering the phones who knew nobody politically. And she was a nice girl, sweet as she could be, and good on the phone, but she didn't know anybody. But when the state chair called and she asked him how to spell his name. When he got his meeting with Sherm Tribbett, believe me, Sherman found out he needed to put somebody else out there on the phones. So I got moved from the file room to the phones, and that's how I got answering phones and working in the governor's office.
2: Did you, did you have any idea when you were sitting there in the governor's office answering the phones that someday you would be sitting in there Never. having people come meet with you?
1: probably until I ran for the House and served eight years. I ran for the Senate and served 10 years. And one day, walking down the hall, Bertie said to me, and Bertie and I had been friends from the time I served in the House, because he and I shared an office, my first term and his first term. We shared an office. And it was a little office. And for the two of us to be in it, we were crowded. But anyway, I said to him, you know, Things have not been going well for me, and my second husband, because I had remarried, had cancer. And the doctors t- had told us he had six months, and that was it. He said, if he lives six months, we'll be lucky. It was, it was a tough time, no question about that. And I had said I wasn't going to run for the Senate again. And they had talked to all kind of people, including Bob Voschel, who said, no, he wasn't going to run for my seat. He was going to talk me into running again. Well, anyway, I finally, he came out and talked to me, and I said, Bob, I think I'm going to run for something else. And I said, we statewide, so you don't have to worry. The seat's open. I said, but don't tell a soul. When I announce what I'm going to do, I'll have you with me, and you can announce what you're going to do. He said, okay, that's a deal. So anyway, I was walking down the hall, and I said to Bob Bird, Bertie, I'm tired of this building, but I just want to do something different. I don't want to sit down on the floor like I have. So he said, what do you want to do? I said, I'm going to run for lieutenant governor. He said, well, the governor usually gets their choice of who's going to run for lieutenant governor. Of course, the governor was going to be Tom Carper. And I said, listen, it's about time we changed some of those old rules. I'm going to run for lieutenant governor. Will you help me? And he said, yes and he helped me every election after that. Wow. And, of course, he had helped me before, but that's how I determined I was going to run for Lieutenant Governor. I had promised Bob Voschel that I was going to leave the Senate. I wasn't going to run for the Senate. Lieutenant Governor was open, and I figured, that's almost doing what I did do, but I didn't have to sit on the floor all the time. Well, Lieutenant Governor had to sit on the floor all the time. <laughs> and not only that, Lieutenant Governor had to serve as Chair of the Board of Pardons, and for that job, I got three hundred extra dollars. I needed a car because I was driving back and forth to Dover, and my car really wasn't reliable. And. I went to the bank that I had dealt with and we had dealt with through the business for 16 years and asked about a loan. And he looked, I could see him right now, he looked me right in the eye and he said, "Ruth Ann, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we will not loan you any money. And I said, you got my money in the bank. You don't have to worry about getting repaid because I had some insurance money and other things that I had put in from when Frank passed away. You know, so I didn't really need. And then I remarried, so I had two incomes instead of one. So anyway, we uh, went around about it for a few minutes and finally I said, okay. I went out to the counter and took out every penny I had in that bank. And I said, that rule's gonna change. A single woman was a woman without any visible means of support. Even if she had a job, it didn't matter. And they would not loan you money. You just had to be a woman, that's all. You know, if you were a man and you were single, it was okay. You could get money, but not a woman. And I was furious. And I went to a couple other banks, (laughs) and I got the same story, saying, no, we don't loan money to women who are single. And I had three kids on my own home, had two cars and a truck because we had a half a dozen trucks, you know, and these two or three hadn't sold and so I still had them. Anyway, that's what made me mad and I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to run and I'll change that law. And I told a few bankers that too. And so, when I started running for the house, they, you know, the lobbyists came to me and said, Jimmy Jackson, if you remember Jimmy Jackson. He said we need to sit down and talk about your banking problems. He said, they'll loan you money. I said, no, that's all right. I'm gonna have a better salary and a better chance at doing things, and so I'm still gonna run. So he said, well, okay, he said, but uh, we're going to work on it. When I got elected, they had already made rules that corrected my problem. So I didn't need any legislation. And that's how it got changed so that women who were single, but responsible for themselves and their family, could borrow money. So, anyway, that was my reason for running. well, even when I ran for Lieutenant Governor, I didn't think I'd win, you know because i didn't I didn't know anybody in Newcastle county that was upstate you know we we downstaters thought they were weird up there, and they thought we were weirder down here. I won, and the funny thing was I even beat Tom Carper i I've never figured that out both times that I ran. I beat Tom Carper it was. It was interesting because, as I say, I never thought I'd win. But I thought at least if we'd get all those people off my back who were asking me, what, why wouldn't I run? Why wouldn't I run? Why didn't I want to run for anything? So when they all found out I wanted to run for lieutenant governor, they said, oh, good. So then, poor Tom Carper almost didn't have a choice of who he was going to get. And you know the person that was with him who was the worst one in telling him he should not take me as a running mate? Bill Quillen. Now, Bill Quillen was John Carney's father-in-law. Father-in-law. That's right. And he told me himself that he didn't want me to run with Tom. He said, "No." He said, "I knew you were too strong, and you'd over. But you'd be just. He couldn't get a word in edgewise if you wanted to talk, because people like to listen to you." <laughs> and I used to say, "Oh, heck." Nothing's true about that. He knows what he's talking about. Half the time, I'm just guessing. So anyway, well, the lieutenant governor doesn't always know everything. You know, not like the governor does. So anyway. Do you find that that um, made you want to run even more? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that everybody would say, oh, my God, a woman. Are we ever going to, how are we ever going to stand a woman in the governor's office? or the lieutenant governor's office, you know. Well, it's not so bad. She's just running for lieutenant governor. We'll take care of it later, you know. And as soon as I became lieutenant governor, I realized you can't do a darn thing here. It's like whoever said warm spit. That's about what it was. (laughs) That's when I decided I wanted to run for governor. To make a bigger difference. I could make a bigger difference, and especially in education and for kids. That's what I ran on the first time I ran. And environmental issues, because of the farms and what the farmers needed, and you know I I knew from pulling grass and weeds out of lima beans and shucking corn off the corn husk and all the rest of it, just what the farmers needed and did. And the ones who had animals, of course, we had cows before they had milkers. We were the milkers. The in the uh, Environmental things too were important because I worked on them from the time I was lieutenant governor until uh, lieutenant governor from the House, the Senate, and as lieutenant governor. And I had a strong following in the environmental area, and that's helped me when I ran the first time for governor. I'll always believe that those environmental people know when you are really with them and when you're just talking with them. It was a tough campaign, and I ran against John Burris, who was a businessman and had worked for the Chamber of Commerce. And the Chamber of Commerce and the News Journal thought, sure, they had a man in the governor's house. And when I won, one of the employees of the News Journal, not my favorite, told me he hated me for beating John Burris. And I would feel it when he wrote everything he wrote. And he did.
2: What was it like being a woman running statewide? I mean, in a male-dominated. Uh,
1: well, I had run twice for lieutenant governor, so it wasn't like I didn't know the ropes. But it was different. And I figured John Burris was... You know, the Burris family was well-known and contributed to everything. I was lucky to have enough money to feed my kids, you know, let alone do anything else. There's only one thing that mattered. I wanted to beat him in Milford. I had to beat him in Milford, and I did. And he could never believe it. (laughs) He said, everybody I talked to told me they were going to vote for me. He said, I don't know how you won, because everybody was going to vote for me. And I felt like, yeah, I didn't believe him when they told me that. That was your problem. You believed them. <laughs> the funny thing was, when I ran for governor, the story was that I would be too weak, right? And then we had things in my first campaign, or my first term, like the uh, smoking ban. And everybody said, anything weak about it with that woman? She stood up to everybody and told them, it's got to be done. It's your health, it's my health. And I don't want those smokers killing me. It was, it was funny. You kind of get a feel for it. And then the second time I ran, I had just done the smoking ban. And even my friend Gary Patterson, who was a Republican, but was one of my best friends and supporters, told me that I had killed myself. I would never get reelected. I needed to get off the smoking ban. And I said, no. I'm determined, and if I don't win, but I get the smoking ban, it will be well worth it.
2: Why was the smoking ban so important to
1: you? Roger died of lung cancer. And they told me he had more than one strike against him. He started smoking when he was 14. When they they told me they wanted him to go get some x-rays done, Because his lungs were congested. And when they got done, they said that his lungs were so congested, you could not have gotten a needle through them. They were that bad. And they said, You know, we're not going to tell you how long, but we're going to tell you right now, he's not going to live long. And of course, then the second doctor, who was the specialist, told me he'd probably have six months. Both of my grand, my grand, my real grandmother, and grandfather, both had cancer, and Uncle Ike had cancer, but he used to smoke a pipe. I always wondered, but that's why when they said to me, "You should exempt cigars and pipes," and I said, "No, wait a minute. You're not going to exempt anything, because once you start, you're going to exempt everything and everybody. If I accept one amendment, I'll be stuck with a hundred." So I said, no, it's going to be just the way I wrote it. So anyway, that's what we did. Poor Leanne. I don't know, you probably don't remember Leanne Walling, but you remember she worked for the State News when she came here, too. She came from Texas. Anyway, she ran up the stairs. Thurman Adams says you don't have the votes. He wants to know what you want to do. Well then you could table it if you didn't have the votes and then bring it up any time you wanted to. I said, You go back downstairs and tell him I said, Ask for a roll call. She came back upstairs about a half hour later and said, Thurman's sure you don't have the votes. I said, Go downstairs and tell Thurman, call the roll. I was that sure I had it. He didn't think I had eleven, I had fourteen. Hmm. How many do you think I had when the roll was called? When it was first called, until everybody else realized it was gonna pass, and they better be on the wagon, because it moved fast, they changed over. But it had 14 votes on the first roll call. So I read my numbers right. I had been counting those votes in the House and the Senate for a long time, so.
2: Well I remember that's one of the things people that I've talked to through the years have said about you is that you were a creature of Legislative Hall, that you knew how to work that building and how to get things done and
1: where to find people. And they were all friends, you know. I think that's the thing that if you asked Don Carney what he wanted the most out of his governorship, he wanted to have the same working relationship I had with the House and the Senate, and he wanted to have the same working together group as secretaries as I had. I used to know all the tricks of the trade. You wanna know what a amendment is to a bill it's yours, and you don't know how to fight it if you don't know what it is? You get to somebody who's in the printing room. When it gets printed, you get it. They may take it in a ladies' room and leave it. They may leave it on your desk upstairs and you won't know if you get up there. You know where you're going to get it. It might be in your office when you're upstairs and it's down there. But somebody can walk by and tell you where it is. And if you need it, you know. Well, I did that for a few of my friends. In the House and then in the Senate. Even Richard Cordray didn't know what I did. I love that. Tom Sharp said, Oh, hey, you always get these amendments. He said you have to be going down to the printing room. I said, believe me, I didn't step foot in the printing room. You didn't have to. But, something to be said for making sure that I gave that little girl at work down there in the printing room a nice Christmas gift and made a big fuss over her every time I was out anywhere and she was there, she did her job for me. Governor, I was thinking about the conversation we had with Mark Brainerd and John Carney, and they mentioned uh, 9-11. Uh, what a day. Who
2: was that like? I mean, we had a unique role to play.
1: I had a speech, and I was speaking to the library group. I was speaking. And here came Steve Ondaig. I don't know if you remember him or not. Steve was one of He was my chief of security, the one who helped put it all together. Well, I, I just said to the ladies that I was talking to, and it was mostly ladies, ladies, I'm sorry to have to leave you, but you saw my security run in. We have a state problem, and I need to go. And off the stage we went, and I went to the governor's house, okay? And they called me and said, you can't stay at the governor's house. Why, because it's in Dover, and if they're going to hit anything around Dover, it's going to be the air base, and if they hit it with the right thing, the governor's house is no good. So you've got to go somewhere else. So I said, well, could I go home? And they said, well, no, they probably know where your home is. Why don't you go up to the bomb shelter? And they had enough equipment in that we could use it. And they kept calling me from Washington and from the base about every five minutes but the first thing that Steve said to me, what are you going to do about kids? I said, close the schools. Send the kids home and tell their parents to go home and be with them.
2: It's another thing you talked about that
1: day was that, that there was a, you got a call that there was a plane. Yep. Uh, and it wouldn't, Out in the ocean. It wouldn't identify itself. Wouldn't identify itself at all. And it was headed right for Dover Air Force Base. But that was at night after everything else all day.
0: Yeah.
1: It was... It was strange, that airplane ended up, they sent some planes up to force it down because it wouldn't identify itself. And it was a legitimate plane, no reason to worry about it, but they took every seat, every piece of furniture, everything out of that airplane, and they called me to ask me if I had a building I could let them use. And I thought, oh yeah, you want to blow my building up, huh? What are they going to do then, fix it for me? I'd had enough problems with federal funds. So anyway, I said, no, I don't have anything that you could use. They've all got, you know, we're we're using them for one reason or another. So they emptied one of the hangars of the planes that were in it, and they used it. But they took everything out of that plane. Well, then the next call I got was, we have 242 people. Where are we going to put them? I said, you got lots of buildings out there at the base. I'm sure you can empty another one if you want to. But, you know, it's not safe for me to live in Dover, and they want me to put him in a place in Dover? That didn't sound right to me. They decided that there was nothing wrong with the plane that was in, and the people were all okay. He had just gotten off course. He was headed for Philadelphia, and he'd gotten off course. And he didn't realize that his equipment was not working, so he didn't hear them when they were trying to call him, but the equipment was down. So it's funny how something happens and everybody else says, oh, there was a plane, a questionable plane at the air base. You know, but they didn't know the whole story. And it's always the state police or some federal FBI agent tells you, don't say a word. Don't tell anybody this story. The same thing goes for the things when they happen at the prison. The attorney general's office and the police will call. Anything that you know is classified information. Don't tell anybody. And if the press calls, don't talk to them, you know. And the press calls and they say, oh, she's just being mean, she won't talk to us. Hey, I had my orders from the AG's office. I worked in the library to pay my tuition when I went back to school. Otherwise, I would never have been able to got the year and a half that I got. You know, it was just one of those things. You choose between your children and getting yourself an education so you can get a better job. You gotta feed your children every day and every night. Now, the argument I used for getting the seed bill passed, get ready for this one. These kids get in trouble they're in the juvenile system. They cost us money. Adults, they're in trouble. They go in the correction system. They cost us money. They haven't paid any taxes yet. How come I'm paying taxes if they're not? Well, you know what? Let's give them their education. Let's help them get a decent job. And that way, it's going to save us money because it costs us more money to keep them in jail than it does to give them the education. That's how I got the bill passed. And everybody looked at me and said, you know, it sounds so simple. And you'd be surprised how many other states I have gone to when they've been getting ready to pass the bill and told them the same thing. I said, tell me, how much do you spend for keeping a person in jail, just a normal person, I don't mean one of the real bad guys, just a normal person that's in jail, how much do you spend? How much do you think the tuition is for a kid to go to college? And if they go for two years, which is what we had, it was an associate's degree. Then we had about, well, when I was there, we had about some colleges that would accept all of their credits. Now it's like 600 and some. Now I will tell you that... <laughs> Nancy Wagner and Harris McDowell had worked 15 years trying to get a scholarship bill passed. And I told them, I said, the problem with your bills are you give them too much to argue about. So I said, what we're going to do is make it as simple as it can be. They get the tuition. All they have to do is stay out of trouble. They can't be involved with the police or with the prisons and go the year they graduate because if they go do something else, you'll never get them back to school. So they gotta go in the fall after they graduate in the spring. I said, that's it. Well, somebody said, oh, we gotta put some restrictions on how much money the parents make. I said, why? How many of those parents do you think pay the tuition? The kids borrow the money to go, and then when they get out of school, they pay it off. Daddy doesn't give them anything. I said, sure, there's a few, but i bet you one thing, it's not as many as there are that don't get any help from their families. And so that was the other thing that got them. When they sat and thought about it, I don't remember who it was. I almost think it was Sharpie. And his dad worked in legislative hall. Everybody knew him too. He said, my dad was the best guy in the world. He said, I have him here working with me. I think the world of him. He said, but you think he gave me any money for college? He told me if I wanted college, I had to work and earn it. It's amazing. Well, that's the way. I wasn't sure how the guys downstairs in the House and the Senate would act after I became governor because, you know, Sharpie ran for governor. Dave McBride ran for governor. Two or three of them ran for lieutenant governor. Nancy and Harris McDowell both ran. Same way in the house. Terry Spence was always going to run, but he never had enough nerve to do it. (laughs) Anyway, you know, here's this dummy who didn't even get out of high school.
0: You kind of paved the path for women and young women um, being the first female governor, what advice would you have for young women today, and do you see yourself as a trailblazer?
1: Well, I've told of many a group, and I keep saying it, even now. Uh, I went into one of the schools, the academy. I have a great-grandson who's there. And I tell him, don't tell me who is holding you back. There's only one person who can hold you back, and that's you. If you're willing to work to put in the time and the energy, you can accomplish anything you want to, and there's nobody out there can stop you. You just have to be willing to do it. And it's good for the men, too. Because they're the same, it's always some reason, well, somebody has more years than I've got, so they'll get that job, you know. How do you know if you don't try? So you're your own worst enemy. Just imagine if I had said, well, woe is me. I'm a widow with three kids and nowhere to go. And no job and no education. I could still be sitting back there saying, woe is me. Thank God that banker made me mad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dehousedems, on Twitter at dehousedems, and on Instagram, also at dehousedems. More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed.